How long is a paper out for review? Like, how long do you have to wait? Forever. <laughs> Welcome to episode three of Major Revisions. Today, we will be talking about the perils and process of peer review. Here, as always, Grace Wilkinson, professor-elect at Iowa State University. How are you, Grace? I'm doing well today, Jeff. Thanks. And also, John Walker from the University of Kansas. How are you, John? Doing great. And I am Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University, where I actually am today, looking out my window. We'll actually be soon moving to the basement, so I'm going to miss this window. It's going to be really sad. That's a shame. Oh, that is a bummer. The basement? Just in time for winter. Are you at least yeah, on know, the window right? side, Jeff? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think so at all, actually. Haven't seen the new confines. That's... Um, don't know what the time scale is at, so I'm going to keep my window as long as I can. Yeah, hope that you're on the window side of the basement. I know from experience oh. that the dark side is not the the best place to be. <laughs> the dark side of the basement. Yep. So All right. I had so, an experience this week that I kind of wanted to share with you guys. I thought you'd find pretty amusing. Um, yeah, on, absolutely. On Monday, I went to the dentist. So a few days ago, I was at the dentist, and this is a new dentist. You know, so you go, and they take the x-rays and clean your teeth with the hygienist, and then the dentist comes in to actually look at your teeth, right? And so um, this dentist, I hadn't met him before, and he wanted to chat a little bit and get to know me, which is real nice. And so within the context of that chat, he asked, so what do you do? And so I responded with my usual sort of answer that I tell folks that aren't in science or in academia. I say, um, I'm a researcher and I study water quality issues and how to solve those problems. And there was this really long pause and he kind of looked at me and looked over his glasses <laughs> and he went, well, I guess everybody has to do something. So where are you from? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to respond to that. Uh, clearly, neither did he. Uh, and so I was wondering, have you guys ever had an instance uh, where you've told somebody what you do as a scientist and they responded poorly? Um, I used to, so when I did water quality sampling for the Shenandoah watershed study, which is conducted in Shenandoah National Park, I would run into people all the time. And you know, most of the time, they're out, outdoors hiking, so they're already kind of inclined that way kind of broadly talk about what I was doing first. You know, I never mentioned like, oh, we're studying these things affected this and this and kind of build up to it. Most of the time, though, everyone was just really more interested in fish. And <laughs> and then they would ask questions like, can I drink the water? How big are the fish? Are the fish good to eat? Uh, I don't think I've... Yeah, I don't know if I've... John, do you, you ever been kind of dismissed like that? That was pretty cold, Grace. That's what yeah. I thought. He's not going to be my dentist anymore. Yeah, you have a salty, salty dentist. Yeah, you know, I've actually never had quite, you know, that experience. I mean, I tell people what I do, and sometimes they don't really know what to make of it. But no one's ever been, like, that dismissive of what I do. Uh, it's kind of surprising and disappointing. Yeah, it was, it was certainly surprising. I guess the other experience that I often have... Um, is when I'm with my husband, who's also an environmental scientist. When people ask what we do, um, he's an environmental scientist, he's an aquatic ecologist, but he works with sea turtles. So automatically, no matter what I say I do, he's going to win. Yeah, dude, sea turtles are awesome. Right, and so sometimes it's not fair when people ask us what we do when Robert's around, because he's way cooler than I am. 
and it's just not fair. <laughs> Maybe you should just switch fields. Just go study. What's what trump sea turtles? There's got to be something. Dolphins. Elephants. I don't know, man. I'm pretty. I'm pretty anti-dolphin. Whoa. I mean, I like. I mean, you know, I'm mean, not like get rid of them all, but dolphins like ducks have this kind of dark side to them. That's a little bit scary and frightening. Penguins too. Like all three of them have have some dark, dark parts of them that make me uncomfortable with them as as animals. I guess. There's probably, probably a children's too. book in that. You could write the first ever ever evil penguin dolphin combo. <laughs> if science doesn't work out. I do. Elephants are pretty good though. That one's a good one. People like the. Oh, you could work with pandas. Ah, oh, see, there you go. Yeah, I just have to find a cooler, charismatic megafauna than my husband so that people will want to talk to me at cocktail parties as well. I'm going to become a corgi ecologist. (laughs) Is that a thing? (laughs) I'm pretty sure you will make it a thing. (laughs) When I grow up. And when you submit your paper, it will have to go for peer review, which is our topic today. Maybe we should get onto that before we devolve (laughs) too far. How's that for a transition? Excellent. Yeah, so today we'll, we're going to go through kind of the process of peer review, right? Kind of, you know, starting from selecting a journal to the entire process, what happens on both ends, and kind of our experiences as well. So I guess starting the first, Grace, you've written you've written a paper. Yes, I have. How do you figure out where to send? Where do you? Sp- <laughs> you've written a hypothetical paper. Where are you going to send that paper? How do you select the journal? Yeah, so that can sometimes be difficult, but usually when I'm starting to formulate the paper, I'm already thinking about that journal. And what I'm thinking about is the audience, so who I think reads that journal. Maybe if it's a society journal, um, I think about who are members of that society that would normally be subscribing and getting that journal and the table of contents and their email. So who I want to be reading the paper and what scientists I want to essentially dialogue with about this research that I'm presenting. Um, and sometimes it can help by going to the aims and scopes that the journal presents um, on their websites as well. And if I'm really at a loss, I usually go through and look at all the papers that I'm citing. And if there's one or two journals that are coming out as very common journals that I'm citing, then I go and look at their aims and scopes. John, do you take a different approach? Uh, Not drastically. I think the only thing that I would add to that is um, just thinking about the, you know, not just the, the audience in terms of topic, but also the audience in terms of Um, impact factor and you know if I think a study is you know really uh, robust and on a really important topic then gonna shoot at a you know more um, a sort of a more widely read um, or more well-known journal Um, if maybe my results are a little bit uh, more equivocal or the you know the topic just it just doesn't seem as hard-hitting then you know I'll downgrade my expectations for for where to send that piece okay so question follow up on that um, you have some of our listeners maybe you know maybe writing their first paper or haven't or just getting to the point of thinking about that and you bring up impact factor can you explain that a little bit people maybe they're not familiar with that term Oh gosh, I mean, there's a, a there's a formula for it that I don't know off the top of my head, um, but it essentially has to do with how many papers are cited versus the number of papers that um, are published in that journal. 
And so um, the higher the impact factor, that's sort of an, an index of how widely um, read or how influential that journal is. Usually there's like a time averaging, right? Over three to five years or something? Yeah. Correct. And the importance cool. of that impact factor is it's not just, it's more than just the people who read it, like John said, it's the people who are citing that work. In other words, it had an impact on their work or their views. So sometimes I also consider the open access part of it as well, uh, but not as much. That said, just because, you know, two thirds of my papers have now been submitted to, submitted or published in open access journals and... Which I don't know. I mean, I guess you know, I can see both sides, especially if you're kind of starting out in academia and you want to get a job. You definitely want those kind of high quality papers. But I do. I like the idea of looking at like society type journals a lot, and it's probably something I'm going to aim for more in the future. Kind of targeting that audience because I think in a way it builds up, you know, kind of your your body of research as a researcher as well. If you're kind of targeting a specific audience with the the onus of your research. Another thing about open access journals, and this is totally anecdotal, I don't have any numbers to back this up, <laughs> but it does seem like a lot of articles that get picked up in the popular press, um, you know, if they're not coming out in like, you know, the monsters like ecology or uh, science and nature, they're coming out in open access journals. So, you know, for whatever reason, uh, maybe because they're open access, the the popular press seems more in tune with what's going on in those journals than in a lot of uh, society journals. That's just my opinion. Oh, and, and I guess to clarify, if you, so open access means that it's totally open. You don't have to pay to, to read it or anything. A lot of other journals have that, that paywall where if you don't have the, you know, like the privileged access of like university access or library access that allows you to you know, or a subscription of these journals, you would have to pay a fairly substantial fee, um, sometimes hundreds of dollars, just to read an article if it's paywalled. So yeah, no, definitely, I think, if you start doing collaborations with people in other countries, particularly countries in um, less developed nations, open access can be a huge boon as well. You know, because they don't have, you know, they don't necessarily have that option. Yeah. Uh, the, so one of the downsides, though, to open access as the author is that the cost then is put on you. And so it can be quite expensive to publish in open access journals. Um, yes. Which I think sometimes <laughs> yes, also also kind of creates this pay-to-play scenario where, if, you know, if you're on a project or you have the needs to be paying for open access, then you can do that and your work is getting out there. But there are also a number of journals that are called hybrid journals. And so they allow the author to pick whether they want to be open access and pay that open access fee or not have it be open access. And usually there's an embargo period of three years to five years, and then the paper becomes open access after that time. So that's another option as well, if you don't quite have the money to pay for open access right up front. All right, so you've targeted a journal. The paper has been, um, at this point, you've went through and you've you know, proofed your citations and put them in whatever arbitrary format the journal requires, because science seems to not have a universal format. And you've done whatever weird editing and formatting things you need to do. John, what comes next? Uh, part of submitting that paper is usually uh, writing a cover letter to uh, accompany your submission. And so that's, you know, basically, there's a little bit of, you know, things that appear in just about every cover letter about, you know, how this work hasn't been submitted before and um, that all the authors agree to submitting it at, you know, that um, particular journal. Um, but oftentimes part of that process is also 
um, suggesting reviewers for uh, for the journal uh, or for your paper to the journal. So yeah, how do how do you guys make decisions about who to suggest? I very similar to what Grace mentioned about going through the paper and looking at journals that you're citing. If I don't already have someone in mind familiar with their work, I'll look at the you know who I'm citing within that paper, see you know kind of what the blocks that I'm building on, and look at that. Grace, do you have a different preferred method? No, that's definitely what I do as well. And I also um, try to take note when I'm at conferences, people that are presenting work that's similar to mine. Those are, maybe I haven't seen their paper out yet because they're still in the process of writing it as well, but they would be a good reviewer for the work that I'm submitting. And yeah, looking at the papers that you are citing is a good way because I think if an associate editor is also not as familiar with that um, body of literature, they'll look at the papers that you're citing as well and try to pick reviewers from there. So that's a great way. Great strategy. You can, also, you can also designate people who you don't want to have review your paper for whatever reason. Say there's a professional disagreement or, I mean, I guess there's myriad reasons that one could do that. But that is something that you can do as well. You can just kind of, when you're in that letter that you mentioned or, you know, some journals even in the interface that they have online. Because all these submissions go through typically like an online kind of interface form that you can designate people who you're like, I would just rather them not review my paper for you know, whatever reason that may be. And that's definitely kind of an okay thing. Yeah, and there's also people who can't review your papers because they have a conflict of interest, too. Oh, yeah. And so that's usually defined by the journal, but it's folks that um, have been on papers with you usually for the past five years, have been on grant proposals with you in the past five years, have had, um, you've been their student, as say, in an advisor capacity, um, or they're sometimes many journals say even if they're members of your own department at your institution, they can't be reviewers for you. Yeah, I think it follows pretty much the same kind of conflict of interest rules that reviewing a grant or fellowship application would go as well, pretty much like you outlined there. Like you can never really review or go over a former student of yours or you know, a former advisor can't do yours, just kind of like you outlined there. So I think it's an important consideration. So you've, you've nominated some reviewers. You pushed send, you submitted it. What happens next? What's the general workflow of how this goes out? Depending a little bit on how big your journal is um, that you're submitting to, your submission will go to uh, an associate editor or a subject matter editor. Um, different journals call them different things, but they're basically the person who actually handles your submission, You know, picks the reviewers, sends the paper out for review, Again, depending on how big the journal is, the associate editor might be the person that actually makes the decision on uh, on your manuscript. Um, on other times, uh, it's in, made in conjunction with an editor-in-chief or solely by the editor-in-chief. Um, I should back up. Oftentimes, that handling editor is also going to make a decision about you know, even whether to send a paper out for review. Yeah, I've had, um, I had one paper that didn't even go out for review, which it actually didn't get a bad review. It was just more that the editor felt that it just didn't fit with the journal that I had submitted it to, which um, I think we'll get into later when we talk about our own you know, experiences. But I found it difficult, not really difficult, but it, it, an interesting experience when you're doing kind of cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary work of finding the right journals for some of those manuscripts sometimes. Sure, absolutely. And that is supposed to be one of the jobs of the associate editor or subject matter editor right there too is to do some control at that end. Yeah, because, I mean, they want to put out, you know, kind of high quality 
And and they don't want to waste your time by having it be in review if they're going to ultimately end up rejecting it because it doesn't fit with their scope. Which brings us to another thing. How long is a paper out for review? Like, how long do you have to wait? Forever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the worst. Yeah, if you're going to reject it, just reject it quickly. Which is totally fine. I always think of them as as little orphans who need a home and you have to find a place for them. (laughs) (laughs) Each paper needs its forever home. It's just foster home while it's in review. Yeah, so so Grace, what's your your shortest time? And yeah, I think my time? shortest time has been um, at a journal that was a letter style journal that was known for its fast turnaround. So it was in review, and I had a decision within two weeks. But my longest has also been upwards of three months, just in review. Three months, John. What, John? What about you? Well, I've gotten editorial rejections in under twenty four hours, so that is <laughs> whoa, is pretty speedy. But uh, I've also gotten papers that, uh, you know, languish in review for, you know, for upwards of three months. I think that that's sort of my, you know, my maximum cutoff where I start kind of, you know, wanting to bug the journal uh, a little bit because three months is is a long time. And I know that when I do reviews, I don't have it sitting on my desk for three months. So it's sitting on someone else's desk, probably the associate. You know, I have a review. I have a review due right now, actually. This <laughs> one's sitting on my desk. I think my shortest has been about two and a half, three weeks, and my longest has been about three and a half, four months. And the reason the other one was so long was that actually it went out to a third or fourth reviewer, which occasionally happens. It's like, you know, if you have reviewers who are split on a decision, then occasionally, you know, they'll send out to a third or fourth reviewer. I know I've been a third reviewer on a couple papers before. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, you know, it's a decision. All right, so... When they issue a decision, what are the types of decisions? Like, what's the range of outcomes for your paper first round? Well, let's start positively. Um, And it can be except with minor revision. Uh, I I guess you can get an all-out, straight-up except. I don't know if that's ever happened to anyone before. And if it has, I'd like to meet you. I've heard, actually, in myth of that happening one time. But go ahead. There's light editorial things or some um, very, very small changes that need to be made that don't change the quality of the paper, the message of the paper, don't require any new data analysis or anything. They're usually just editorial. So that's probably your your best outcome. And the next comes down when you get accepted with major revisions. John, you, we, we've had some experience with this. Do you want to describe major revisions? Yeah, So that so that's when the reviewers identify some larger presentational or even at times methodological issues with the paper that they think you're going to be able to resolve. Otherwise they wouldn't have asked you to, to revise it. Um, But it's a, it's a more substantial um, thing that, you know, could impact your overall conclusions or you know the types of literature and, and ideas that you uh, that you draw from to contextualize your study, but a lot of journals, in my experience, call a uh, decision major revisions, um, even though the changes that they're requesting are pretty small and seem a little bit more like minor revisions. But I think that I think that journals see it as a way of you know sort of hedging 
their bets. Um, usually if you get asked for any revisions, it's, there's a very good chance that your paper will eventually get accepted. I think major revisions is the new minor revisions. Yeah. That's kind of how that goes. I've heard a lot of people say that. And, of course, there is always the option that it will be outright rejected. And in some cases, you get a rejection letter, and they will very specifically outline, don't even bother to you know resubmit this. But occasionally, you can get rejected with you know, the option to resubmit you know, kind of as well. Yeah, which is, option. I think, actually just a trick, kind of a tool that's used by the journals to change their um, submission timeline statistics. So journals often track from the time of first submission to first decision, and that's a metric that's given so that authors know how long to expect their paper to be sitting in review. And if they reject with the opportunity to resubmit, they get to hit reset on that timeline. And so it um, helps their statistics. Oh, okay, that makes sense. So sometimes I think reject with the opportunity to resubmit is kind of a neater way of just saying we want to reset our timeline so we're rejecting this, but really, it's major revisions. So you get your review back, assuming minor or major. What do you do? How do you respond to that? What's the next kind of process? Or next step in the process? This is the process. Usually for me, I uh, kind of go into a stupor for a couple of days and try and avoid thinking about the decision. <laughs> you kind of have to sit there and process it? No, I mean, even even when the comments are positive and constructive i just think it can sometimes be really overwhelming to uh try and deal with it so i usually read it and just let it sit for a little bit unless there's a really tight deadline or something like that and uh yeah just you know just kind of let it marinate for a little bit and then come up with a game plan for how to address the comments yeah it can be difficult to to read the reviews and even when they're positive or you know, trying to generally helpful because most of the time they are. I mean, you know, if somebody's taken the time to read through through your science, through your manuscript, and offer you know really constructive feedback. I mean, I think nine times out of ten, most reviewers mean well. I mean, there are occasionally, obviously, just kind of mean people. But um, you know, it can be hard to look at that feedback to read it because you know you've put a lot of effort into that whatever paper it was, whatever analysis, and the time. And yeah, it can be tough to just kind of read them. Especially if it is like an outright rejection. Yeah, it can be really difficult to handle that. Um, but it is kind of something that I think, you know, as a scientist, you have to just kind of learn to roll with in a way. As long as it doesn't cross that arbitrary line. So what is usually the time frame given for revisions? Oh, geez. It, it can vary by journal. Yeah. Um, I've been given anywhere from two weeks to two months. How about you, John? Or Jeff? Yeah, that that's the I range of times that that I've experienced as well. Yeah, I'm thinking like in the three to four week range is what I remember. So, and and then during that time, you not only are you revising your manuscript, but you're creating a document um, that's a response to revision. So it's essentially a really long letter that comes with its own cover letter. At least I usually submit mine that way. That point out to the associate editor in light of all the wonderful reviews that the reviewers gave us and their wonderful constructive criticism. Here's how the paper has become even better. Um, and then go by point by point and respond to each comment from the reviewer, whether it was major or minor. There's definitely this this type of syntax, or just the way that you word letters in this academic ease. That's just kind of overly formal. <laughs> that is kind of the process, you know. <laughs> In the cover letters and the response letters as well. 
Um, it's very much like a, I don't know, like a, like a courtier in 16th century France or something. It's the way that it's a little bit, a little bit much, but it's fine. Um, so have either of you guys ever gotten a really bad peer review or just kind of offhanded comments? Grace, have you had that experience? reviews that have people that it seemed like did not want to like the paper and so they found a couple of small things that were not um, what I what we refer to in our project as deadly there's deadly faults and there's just faults and every work has some faults usually in it um, and it's how you deal with them and and so really try to um, reviewers that have tried to clamp onto that um, uh, say well because I don't agree with this small item I think I disagree with the entire paper and it's all just complete crap and so but that's an opportunity usually you know associate editors are smart people that's why they're associate editors and so they look at that and they see the other reviews and they say okay well I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to this and you can usually make the argument that you know oh yes thank you reviewer for pointing out this flaw that's something that we've addressed now more thoroughly in the manuscript as you can see from this sensitivity analysis or this other um, back of the envelope com calculation that we've done it doesn't have a large influence on our final conclusions and it doesn't change our final conclusions but now we've acknowledged that and addressed it more fully and that's what's really important in a response to reviews is always being able to come back and say how do you change the paper in light of every comment very rarely should you just say we disagree with the reviewer and move on you know i've actually had a response to one of my reviews that said they just simply disagree with what i said <laughs> um, how about no. you john have you had a bad experience you know, I I think I've been fortunate. I've have by and large gotten very um, you know constructive reviews that haven't been mean spirited or anything like that. I have gotten a couple of reviews that you know were just downright unhelpful. Um, they weren't you know they they weren't detailed um, in explaining why they. Uh, took issue with uh with the paper um and i've also gotten some reviews that were really uh pretty pedantic this is actually a a paper that um jeff and i uh are on together yeah one of the reviewers uh, the, the the paper's in review right now from the first round of review uh one of the reviewers like really latched on to not even issues with our you know experimental design or you know methodology or anything like that but just pedantic points about our study system and you know to, to be fair this is not an you know a, a system where um jeff and i are you know expert to the detail you know to the level of um the person who we think wrote this review but the the tone was was disappointing and it was it was unhelpful because it didn't point out any problems with what we had actually done it was just about, you know, basically our introduction, essentially. I, I did have someone, I had someone point out that I should use a data set that didn't exist for the time period in which the paper and the study was done. So that was interesting. Not sure how I was supposed to incorporate that, that data product doesn't even exist. But and, hopefully uh, when you have the, the opportunity to respond to reviews, you have the opportunity to say sort of to the associate editor or whatnot, you know, we did our due diligence. We, we tried to change this. This data set doesn't exist. What an excellent 
comment from the reviewer, and if these data did exist, wow, that just would have been great. Bummer. <laughs> Sorry. But it, that also just gets at the major point, too, of um, I don't understand when... I've gotten a few reviews where they almost feel like personal attacks. Yeah. The person is attacking me. And I think a great way to avoid that when you're writing a review and something I always try to do is to never use personal pronouns or say the authors or anything. Just discuss the work. You're reviewing the work, not the people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's is, really important. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a conversation around double-blind peer review, too, and see if that's something, if that's, uh, you know, a methodology. That's something we want to talk about more. So it looks like I actually have to go here in a minute, I think sooner than I thought I was going to have to. Do you guys want to wrap this up in a second part and splice it into one episode later? Or do you guys just want to keep going? And then I'll... Yeah, I think that we could okay. even, you know, make this part one of peer review and um, do part two a little later on. How you okay. write your reviews. Yeah. For cool. part right. two. A quick update on our forecast prediction outlook. Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize for Literature. That makes John incorrect. Did, did not see that one coming um, <laughs> at, at all. That's, yeah, it's my undergrad's in literature, and so I still have a lot of friends on Facebook who, you know, within that world. And um, one of my friends just kind of listed off like maybe 70 different authors' names. And then at the very end, Bob Dylan, question mark? <laughs> you know, whatever. And uh, also Red Sox Eliminated, so we'll have to keep up with that, and we'll do some uh, some additional forecasting questions. And I think you guys should come up with some too, because I like ridiculous themes that kind of and threads that keep going from show to show. Uh, so with that, um, next episode we'll follow up. We'll look at peer review systems, benefits, pitfalls, different systems, how they work, and maybe different models of peer review, and also talk about how we build and construct our own reviews sound like a plan guys sounds like a great plan don't forget to visit our website majorrevisions.weebly.com and hit us up on twitter major underscore revisions this has been episode three of major revisions uh thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time karina karina get where you've been so long Karina, Karina